With COVID cases on the rise, the governor and the legislature are negotiating an end to the governor's emergency declarations. We'll hear from the governor and talk with Attorney General Todd Rokita. Plus, the Senate gets ready to take up the president's Build Back Better bill. We'll talk with Congressman Larry Bouchon and with the White House climate advisor. All that and the impact of learning loss in our state. It's all ahead right now on this week's edition of In Focus. Thanks so much for joining us. Is it time to end the governor's emergency orders or is it still too soon with cases again on the rise? State lawmakers had initially planned to be back at the statehouse this coming week to try and answer that question. But now that potential vote has been canceled with the governor deciding to go ahead and extend the state's emergency orders for another month. It's just the latest back and forth in a negotiation between the governor and lawmakers that's played out quite publicly in recent days. Kristen Eskow has more from the State House, where lawmakers held a lengthy hearing last week. So that balance we have now between the business's right and individual's right come to what you see in this bill. The proposal released by Republican legislative leaders would limit vaccine mandates by private employers. It doesn't ban them, but it does require employers to offer workers a weekly testing option in lieu of getting vaccinated. Under the proposal, employers would cover the cost of testing, not the employees. And an employee who complies with weekly testing cannot be reprimanded. And I know people have said, well, we're coming back in January. It can wait till January. Um, I'm telling you right now, I have people that are saying I'm, I'm on the chopping block. Business leaders raise concerns about the proposal, noting the cost of testing to employers. It significantly discourages employers from um, requiring vaccinations. Democratic lawmakers question the process. And I'm, I'm fr quite frankly concerned about why are we straying from the usual process that we engage in. Governor Eric Holcomb announced last week he would end the public health emergency if the legislature met three conditions, including keeping federal benefits for SNAP and Medicaid programs and allowing the state health commissioner to allow pharmacists to provide the COVID vaccine to young children. It means that this is part of the process. It means that this is the very beginning of the process. I understand uh, this is atypical because it's such an accelerated process. All right, and Kristen joins me now here in the studio. You were at that hearing, hours of testimony, a lot of business leaders saying they didn't like the idea of this plan going through so quickly, and now, sure enough, lawmakers changing course. Well, yeah, Dan, and I'm certainly not surprised by this turn of events. Several business leaders spoke at this meeting speaking against the proposal. That provision of employers paying for testing was their biggest concern. And even among the citizens who were there, most people spoke out against the proposal, even people who said they're against vaccine mandates generally. I listened to more than five hours of public yeah. testimony, only a small handful of Hoosiers spoke in support of this idea. A lot of people there from the medical community as well. You and others in the media had a chance to talk with the governor this week about his concerns. Here's what he had to say. Is it something you could support? I'm, I'm focused on making sure my three things stay there and, and the additional language in the draft bill uh, I'll be um, working with the legislature on. Making sure that whatever the ultimate end product is uh, provides some certainty. And so I, I do have some questions. Does that mean you're not happy with the language? That's it means that this is part of the process. It means that this is the very beginning of the process. And so here we are at the very beginning of the discussions. I'm happy my three things are included. I want to follow up on some additional items that they included. 
And in a statement Wednesday, the House Speaker said, after further discussion with our Senate colleagues and the governor, we've decided to continue working on these issues through December and tackle legislation at the start of the regular session in January. House Republicans remain resolved to take quick action this session to help the state and the state of emergency and protect Hoosiers against the federal government's unprecedented overreach. Now, House Minority Leader Phil Giaquinta said, quote, countless hours of testimony prove that Republicans politically motivated eagerness to pass sweeping policy outside of normal processes and procedures was premature. This delay was the right thing to do, and it is a good day when common sense prevails. Dan, back to you. Kristen, thanks. Coming up, we'll also hear from Indiana Attorney General Todd Rokita, his response to the governor's lawsuit against the legislature now going all the way to the state Supreme Court. Today, we're also following the latest from Washington, D.C., with the Senate set to return to work this week to consider the Build Back Better bill, a nearly $2 trillion social spending and climate change package, also known as the Human Infrastructure Bill. While other countries are stumbling out of this pandemic, we're racing ahead because so much of the rest of our economy is doing well, because we have created so many new jobs as fast as we have. We're in a position to attack inflation from the position of strength, not weakness. Now, all of Indiana's Republican members of Congress voted against the Build Back Better bill, including Congressman Larry Bouchon. Well, the number one concern my constituents have right now is inflation and the cost of products out there. And infusing another big government uh, spending bill into the economy is going to only worsen that situation. So fundamentally, I think that's one of the big problems. Um, the other thing is, is this is about a lot of more, a lot more federal control. Uh, and it's not paid for. The CBO came out and said it's $357 billion added to the deficit uh, over the next 10 years, even though the White House says it doesn't cost anything, it certainly does. This past week, we took some of those questions being raised about the bill to White House climate advisor Gina McCarthy. It's still some question as to what kind of uh, bill can get through the Senate. We've also had reaction here in Indiana from some of our Republican congressional delegation members who called the bill shameful. One of our members of Congress said working families will come out on the losing end as Democrats massively expand government control over their lives, in his words. What's your response to that? Well, I think we have to look at what the experts are saying, because if they if they're not listening to the Democratic side of the House, they should at least listen to some of the folks that that are the economists that are speaking and leading Wall Street rating agencies have confirmed that the Build Back Better Act and the bipartisan infrastructure law. When you look at them together, do not add to any inflationary pressures. In fact, what you see here is that these investments are going to be fine by making sure that everybody pays their fair share. We're talking about big uh, corporations and very wealthy individuals will bear the brunt of this cost so that we can start low, actually moving people out of poverty and expand the middle class with the kind of jobs that we need to keep our democracy secure. So these are all fully paid for. And in the end, you are going to see that they are saving consumers money. We have specifically identified opportunities, not just to make sure that we're moving forward with these investments, but we're doing it in a way that saves people money every step of the way. So while there may be folks that, that don't want to look at the data, but when you do, 
And when you consult with like 13 Nobel laureates to confirm that you have your numbers right, and when the House doesn't even pass the Build Back Better Act this morning until they saw all of the data that was produced by independent analysis on the Hill. Until they saw that, they didn't vote, but they voted because they saw the analysis and they know that it's not going to put pressure on inflation and it is going to save people money. How crucial is it in your view that this administration acts on climate change here in the coming years and quickly? Well, honestly, uh, climate change is a, is really a critical issue for us to invest in now. We have spent billions of dollars already trying to deal with the damages that we're seeing, the wildfires, the heats, the, the flooding. And so this is really all about investing in our country, keeping ourselves safe, secure, making us healthy with all the investments in clean drinking water, getting lead pipe out, cleaning up legacy pollution. There's so much in here that is simply uh, uh, basically living up to the name, which is this is building back better for our country and for every community and every family. All right. Coming up next, we'll talk with our panel about the latest news from the state house with lawmakers and the governor squaring off over exactly how to wind down the state's emergency health declaration. Plus, we're one on one with Attorney General Todd Rokita about the governor's lawsuit, Black Lives Matter, and the latest on his so-called parents bill of rights. Stick around. We'll be right back. This week, we're hearing from Indiana Attorney General Todd Rokita, who's issued a follow-up to his so-called Parents' Bill of Rights. The guidance includes a number of topics, including how to run for school board. This just days after the AG issued an advisory opinion calling Black Lives Matter a political organization that needed to be treated as such by Indiana schools. Kristen Eskow asked Rokita about that issue and about the governor's lawsuit against the legislature in an interview last week at the State House. How do schools distinguish between the organization and the great, sentiment? Great question. It's it, it, by their own doing. It's very much intertwined. It's very, you can't, you can't uh, distinguish really much between the phrase and the actions of this political organization. Uh, they're they're right together uh, in in our lexicon these days. So it's very difficult, and that's how schools can get in trouble, which I thought was a good reason to put out the opinion. Does that mean anything that says Black Lives Matter should be banned in your view? Well, it's not, it's not about that banning. They could have it, but when you do that and you start waving the flag, either literally or figuratively, of a political organization legally, you have to be prepared to wave that flag for every political organization. And I just don't think that's what, what school's focus should be. I mean, yeah, the, uh, civics has a, has a place for sure. Social studies has a place. Uh, but increasingly, it seems that math, science, and reading don't have a place. And I think we should, schools should get back to the basics, focus on those things so we can uh, raise children that compete, can compete again with the rest of the world and win. The governor's lawsuit is yeah. now headed to the Supreme Court, yeah. lawsuit against the General Assembly. What's your reaction to that news? Well, I'll tell you, um, you know, we continue to defend Hoosier liberties there too. And um, that's a good thing. You know, the, the, we, we expected that the governor uh, might appeal. He said he just wanted guidance on the issue. He got that guidance from a lower court. Turns out he didn't like the guidance. Uh, so we're all going to be paying now to keep defending that lawsuit. Uh, but the fact that um, the fact that uh, the briefing schedule doesn't seem very hurried, 
I think is a good sign. Uh, the Supreme Court certainly has already um, uh, given notion to our claim that there's really no emergency here. And the fact that legislators, legislative leaders, and the governor are talking about winding down some of the emergency order proves, uh, to me at least, that the, the legislators' law that we're defending against any governor's emergency orders is a good law and it's working. Of course, now that emergency order has been extended another month, let's bring in our panel right now, Laura Wilson, Abdul Hakim Shabazz, Adam Wren. Adam, a couple things to discuss here, the separation of powers issue, everything that happened at the State House, but also uh, these many other issues that Rokita has involved himself in. Certainly he's, he's inserted himself on a number of nationally controversial social issues in his time as AG. Yeah, that's right, Dan. You know, every day I get an email from Newsmax, the conservative-leaning news organization, announcing Todd Rokita's latest appearance on that channel. Uh, it sure seems to me like he's preparing himself, if not for a gubernatorial run, at least for a, a Senate primary where he could face off with a candidate like uh, Governor Eric Holcomb, uh, who will be looking for a job uh, ahead of 2024 when his term, second term comes to an end. So perhaps uh, some of the underlying political tension that we're seeing there, there's this back and forth with the governor and the AG that Rokita mentioned there, and also now this situation with the governor and the legislature. They were going to meet Monday with the intention of voting this bill through in just the one day. Now that's been called off. So, Abdul, what happened here? Uh, I found out uh, today from multiple sources, uh, I'm sorry, earlier this week, of multiple sources, uh, that in a nutshell, there were not enough procedural votes, particularly in the Senate, to go forward because to uh, do what lawmakers are going to do on Monday, they would have to suspend the rules. They need at least a two thirds vote uh, in both chambers to do it. And apparently a handful of Republicans just were not on board uh, with this. And so therefore, uh, instead of facing sort of embarrassment, uh, Republican leaders in the House and Senate said, hey, you know what? We, we will put this on hold and we'll just start back up again in January. Uh, Laura, this continues to be a really interesting case study in the separation of powers in the midst of this pandemic. And unfortunately, it's playing out now with cases uh, again on the rise in our state. It is. And obviously, this is an important public health issue you know, as a policy, but to the point that you initially made in terms of the constitutional uh, laws, the divisions, the powers, and the questions of what the governor can do, what the attorney general can do, and what the state legislature can do, I think it's really interesting to see see this conflict kind of play out, but also to ask ourselves, are our state legislatures a part-time legislature? They're generally in office from January to March or January to April if it is a budgeting year. They're, they don't play that large of a role otherwise in terms of policy making and I think some of the questions involve whether or not they ought to or whether or not they have the power to and what role of course the governor plays in all of this as well. Yeah and Adam it's definitely a difficult time for governors who are tasked with leading their state's response to COVID all the while facing a lot of political heat from those who want to see the state roll back any emergency orders that that had been put in place. That's right, Dan. Indiana has a constitutionally weak governor uh, and Governor Holcomb we've seen that he's really sort of taken kind of a backseat to other Republican governors in the Midwest, people like Governor Mike DeWine sort of modeling what he did uh, during the pandemic. But as time progresses, we're seeing him sort of pull back from that cautious approach and really sort of siding with sort of the right right-wing part of his party on some of these issues, which makes me think that he, in addition to Rikita, 
uh, is making a plan for his future political career uh, after he's governor here in three short years. But again, somewhat of a standoff this past week over these issues. In an op-ed this week, Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette's editorial board said Republican lawmakers uh, had been set to impose regulations affecting our state's public health. They can't claim to be pro-business and can't claim they're listening to anyone other than the loudest anti-vax voices. A Abdul, your, your response to those comments based on what you saw at that hearing on Tuesday? Uh, I think basically Republicans are sort of all over the place. There, there are some are listening to the anti-vaxxers. There are some are listening to business. Uh, some just want to do the right thing. And so one thing I did notice, uh, and you said it in the report earlier, that there were only a handful of people actually came out in support of this legislation. The business community, the hospitals were all against it. The, the, the strong ideological conservative folks were all against it. To me, this was a no-win situation uh, from day one. And so at least this way, lawmakers can go back. They, they can take the time but necessary to do it right as opposed to do it fast. We'll see what happens uh, down the road in January. So again, state lawmakers won't be meeting Monday, but the U.S. Senate will be back in session next week. So Laura, let's change gears here and talk about what's happening there in D.C. with the so-called human infrastructure bill. It passed the House, but could still be facing some changes with moderate Democrats in the Senate, again, poised to leave their mark. And another difficult negotiation could be ahead here. So I think we should expect that, absolutely. And in the first infrastructure bill that did ultimately pass and was signed into law, that was traditional infrastructure. The Democrats are now you know, reframing, we talk about healthcare, taxes, education, immigration, a lot of other components as a new type of infrastructure. And I think that ideological difference, even within the party itself, is where you see that challenge and resistance between the more moderate Democrats that say, I don't know about the spending, I'm not sure about these policies, is this really infrastructure? Infrastructure um, and those that are more progressive saying yes, it reaches into them. Infrastructure itself is usually one of those easy compromises. Yeah. It's something that most people can agree to, and I think using that label in that way is is key here. We'll see how it plays out in the days ahead. Our thanks to the panel. They'll be back coming up. Also ahead, a couple other issues facing state lawmakers: learning loss, and we'll tell you how they're pushing for action after our investigation about the BMV selling your personal information. Stick around. We'll be right back. State lawmakers pushing for action to stop the BMV from selling your personal info. Recently, our investigative team at CBS4 Indy found a legal exception that means certain industries can pay the BMV for access to your records. Several lawmakers expressing concerns about the threat this poses to Indiana's cybersecurity. You can read more about that investigation on our website. Also this past month, we looked at the issue of learning loss and how Indiana officials are dealing with that problem as they prepare for this year's session at the Statehouse. You know, experts say for some, the process of catching up from the learning lost during the pandemic could take up to five years. Once again, here's Kristen Eskow, who spoke with education leaders and lawmakers about their next steps. The data tells a troubling story, revealing the struggles students have faced through the pandemic. Now state officials say they're trying to find out if learning is still being lost. This is a, a very new undertaking in trying to manage the academic impact. Charity Flores is the chief academic officer for the Indiana Department of Education. She says the state is focusing on initiatives involving STEM since math skills were found to be significantly impacted by the pandemic. Flores says she's also concerned about literacy skills of early learners. Especially for students that hadn't completed kindergarten or maybe had some exceptions to their first grade um, over the last couple of years, those foundational skills may be lacking. Flores says the Indiana Department of Education continues to give guidance to school districts, recently expanding online tutoring and teaching resources for students and instructors. 
But she says the state is also providing flexibility for schools to make their own decisions on how to catch up. Knowing that every student came out of the pandemic with different needs is going to be most critically addressed locally. Getting students caught up in the classroom is also an area of focus for state lawmakers who passed additional funding last session to help with those efforts. It will be priority in the 2022 and 2023 session is what, what I expect. State Senator Jeff Rotz chairs the Senate Education and Career Development Committee. He says lawmakers will continue to monitor the state funding that was approved for schools last session, including $150 million in grants to fund new local programs focused on the effort. Some innovative ways that maybe we don't necessarily operate under today uh, that were implemented that seemed to turn out very well. Senator Rotz and other lawmakers say those innovations may be here to stay. Where we were before COVID wasn't where we needed to be. State Representative Bob Baining chairs the House Education Committee. He says he's working with businesses and education leaders to find ways to improve classes and curriculum that don't require legislation. It wouldn't be the state mandating, but it may be the state providing some financial incentive to use this high quality curriculum. How can we maybe move to create a more of a culture of innovation? Lawmakers looking beyond recovery, hoping to make a long lasting impact on learning. From the Indiana State House, I'm Kristen Escal. All right, stick around. We'll be back with more right after this. All right, welcome back. Time to wrap things up with this week's winners and losers. Abdul, I'll start with you, my friend. Uh, my big winner is the American judicial system, whether it was the Ahmaud Arbery case or the Kyle Rittenhouse case, is it shows that when we deal with facts and put emotions aside, the judicial system actually does work. So big kudos to the American judicial system this week. A lot of reaction to both of those cases. Adam? Uh, my loser is one party rule in the state of Indiana, whether it was the chaos uh, at the state house that we saw this past week or sort of tensions between Rokita and Holcomb. Uh, one party rule brings as many problems as it does solutions. And my winner is anybody who ran in the drumstick dash uh, on behalf of Wheeler, Wheeler Mission over Thanksgiving, uh, helping you know, thousands of people get the meals they need uh, to survive. Always a great time and a good cause. Laura? We're coming off of Thanksgiving weekend, so I only have winners, and that's everyone in the state that helps support the Afghan refugees at Camp Atterbury. The Indy Star reported earlier this week that about 3,000 of them have left our state, and we got to show who's your hospitality as their first stop onto their new homeland. Very proud. Governor Holcomb visiting with them this week as well. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving weekend. We'll see you again next week here on In Focus.